Hi, this is Sandy Simpson from Apologetics Coordination Team. Thank you for choosing one of our podcasts, and I hope that you enjoy it and it's a help to you. Today we're going to continue in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And it starts out about talking about lawsuits among believers. Um, uh, Through the years, I've had a number of false teachers threaten to sue me and Jacob and many others. And um, sometimes it gets pretty serious and they're just about ready to take me to court. And one of the things I tell them at that point is, I ask them, are, do you claim to actually be a true believer in the Lord? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I am. Uh, well, then the Bible says that you are not to take another Christian <laughs> to court, to the, to, to the court in the world, or to work it out within the church. If you want to debate me, fine. I have no problem with that. But if you decide to go through with this, you'll prove that you're not a true believer. (laughs) So guess what? Never had a problem with them after that. (laughs) It worked quite well. But you know, today we have probably the most litigious society ever in the history of the world. Taking people and organizations to court has basically become a way of life. Unfortunately, this has also begun to take over in the churches. Threats of lawsuits from Christians against other Christians have become commonplace. But, you know, the Bible does have something to say about that. Let's take a look at it, starting in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes with such matters, about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another and in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, You yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8 definitely instructs believers to not go to court against one another. To demonstrate that Christians are not capable of forgiving each other and reconcile their own differences is to demonstrate spiritual defeat. Now, why would would someone want to be a Christian if Christians have just as many problems and are just as incapable of solving them. However, there are likely some instances where a lawsuit might be the proper course of action. If the biblical pattern for reconciliation has been followed, as in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, 
and the offending party is still in the wrong, in some instances, a, li a lawsuit might be the proper thing to do. But this should only be done after prayer for wisdom, James 1, 5, and consultation with spiritual leadership. 1 Corinthians 6, 4 states, if you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? The whole context of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6 is dealing with disputes in the church. But Paul does reference the court system when he says judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. Paul means that in matters of this life that are outside the church, that's why the court system exists. Paul's saying the church problems should not be taken to the court system, but be judged within the church. Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 26, talks about Paul being arrested and wrongfully accused of something he didn't do. Then the Romans took him in, chapter uh, 22, starting with verse 24, and we read this. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. As they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? Paul used the Roman law and his citizenship to protect himself. So there's nothing wrong with using the court system as long as it's done with a right motive and a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 6-7 declares, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, this is a tough concept for us. The thing Paul is concerned with here is the testimony of the believer. It would be far better for us to be taken advantage of or even abused than it would be for us to push a person even further away from Christ by taking them to court. What's more important, a legal battle or the battle for a person's eternal soul? I don't know if Angela and my sister's here today, but she had a number of operations where the doctors actually really messed up bad. And messed her up. And they decided not to take them to court. Now, a lot of people would say that's stupid today, but I think they were very more concerned about their witness with these people because it was on the mission field that this happened. So, should Christians take each other to court over church matters? No. Should Christians take each other to court over civil matters? Well, if it can in, in any way be avoided, no. Should Christians take non-Christians to court over civil matters? Again, if it can be avoided, no. However, in some circumstances, such as the protection of our rights, as in the example of Apostle Paul, it may be appropriate to pursue a legal defense. In verse 2 and 3, the passage we're looking at states, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? 
Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Those who claim we're not to judge based on Matthew 7, 1, <laughs> need to look at this passage because we absolutely are to judge things within the church with righteous judgment. Why? Because someday in the millennial kingdom, we will be set, set up as judges over the world and even angels. I'm assuming fallen angels. This means that not only are we to <clears throat> resolve matters between believers within the context of the church, but we're also to test the spirits and expel the wicked men from the church who cause divisions and do not follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And we already covered that subject, uh, this verse, but it's good to read it again. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those, in, judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Even back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, God commanded the Israelites to purge the evil from among you. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, Christians are to follow the same course. We are to be unleavened, set apart to the Lord as holy. Therefore, we are to rebuke and finally reject anyone who teaches and promotes heresy and false prophecy. <clears throat> you know some of these verses, but let me remind you of them. Romans 16, 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Ephesians 5.11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye receive of us. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once dark, darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And finally, Titus 3.10, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition rejects. Well, moving on to verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You know, we have to separate ourselves from the wicked who end up, we, we end up finding out that they're wicked in the churches. And we, may, we need to make a distinction. That's why those who live in sin 
should be avoided and disfellowship until they repent. They're to be kicked back into the world in order to shame them and allow the enemy to do his worst with them until they repent, hopefully. They may or may not repent, but to keep the church clean, we have to follow what the Bible says. Why are we to practice what they call excommunication? Because the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. We shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking that just because a person says they're a Christian, yet they're living in, unrep in unrepentant sin, that they'll be going to heaven. We need to be careful not to practice tolerance of sin where the Bible instructs us not to. We're then given a list of some of the practiced lifestyle sins that God will judge. They include fornicators, sex outside of marriage, those who worship idols, idolaters, adulterers, often referring to sex with someone other than your marriage partner, those who practice prostitution, those who practice homosexuality, both male and female, those who steal, those who are greedy, are drunks, slander people, or swindlers, the word in Greek can mean those who extort money from the poor or from their work, or it can also mean those who rob. These types of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul reminds his audience that they were practicing these things before they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. If you're truly saved, you will no longer practice those sins. Why? Because you're washed. You're justified and sanctified in Christ. If churches tolerate those sins, and they're actually not true churches. They're playing church, but are not really made up of born-again people. Those churches that ordain homosexuals and tolerate people who are living in sexual sin are not really part of the true body of Christ. Next, we look at sexual immorality, starting in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for, for the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You know, there's a there was a popular saying, obviously, at that time in the Corinthian church. It was, everything is permissible for me. You know, this is the same saying in the modern churches today, and it's been carried to extremes 
as it was there. Just because we have freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we have the freedom to abuse that freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. I remember a song that used to be sung in churches. It's for freedom that Christ has set me free. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Uh, they focused on the first part of that verse, but they forgot about the end. <laughs> Stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. Notice that Christ set us free so that we could have freedom. Freedom from what? From sin. But then we must stand firm so that we're not burdened again with the yoke of slavery to sin. If we allow ourselves to be enslaved by sin, then we are practicing sin, living a lifestyle of sin. Let's look at that from 1 John. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And of course, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has has to correct the saying, everything is permissible for me, which was primarily in reference to eating foods formerly banned by the Lord in the Old Covenant with Israel. Paul adds that not everything is beneficial and that we must not be mastered by anything. With reference to food specifically, the saying food for the stomach and the stomach for food, Paul adds uh, to that by reminding them God will destroy them both. In other words, in the end, food will no longer matter as the earth will be destroyed by fire. And if a person is practicing the sin of gluttony and greed, they too will be destroyed. He also reminds them that sexual immorality is really a sin against our relationship and marriage to the Lord. We are the bride. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. We are wed to him when we believe that he is God and that only through his blood can he save us. The Holy Spirit then creates a new man in us and we are born again. We're then married to Christ, no longer married to sin and the devil. By virtue of our marriage to Christ, we're guaranteed the resurrection to life eternal rather than resurrection to eternal hell. Remember that our God is a jealous God. When we commit lifestyle sins and practice them, we're denying him, committing adultery against him. God often spoke to the Jews when they sinned against him in terms of breaking a marriage and committing adultery. Remember from Hosea 1-2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and the children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. 
It was to be an illustration to them. Hosea was commanded by God to marry a prostitute in order to illustrate that Israel had committed prostitution and adultery by departing from the Lord. Now, this is not something we're commanded to do. In fact, the Lord is clear that those who commit sexual immorality are departing from the Lord, who has made them part of his body. When a person commits sexual sin and does not repent and uh, and leaves a relationship that causes, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle sin, they're actually leaving the Lord. If we say we are united with the Lord, then we are to be one in spirit with him. If we're united in adultery and sexual sin, we are not one with the spirit. He goes on in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought, with a, uh, bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So what are we to do? We're not just to avoid sexual immorality, but flee from it. I like that word flee. To flee means not to just walk away slowly, but to run at top speed. The picture is not one, uh, not of one who is out for a leisurely walk, but of one who is running away from a burning building or a city under attack. One of the hardest sins to avoid are sexual sins because it involves our own body. The devil knows this, and that's why he most often tempts with sexual sin. But we're reminded that when we're joined to Christ in marriage, our body then becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own, but are bought with a price. That price being the death of the Son of God to pay for our sins in our place. This is the most important thing to remember when tempted with sexual sin. We belong to him. And he's done everything to marry us to himself. We dare not defile the very temple of the Spirit in us. And go down the road of ruining our relationship with Christ. That's a scary thought. But that's something that we need to avoid all the time. And we need to counsel others that they need to avoid sexual sin like the plague. Hi, this is Sandy Simpson again. Thank you for listening to one of our podcasts. You can come to my website, Apologetics Coordination Team at DeceptionInTheChurch.com or go to our YouTube site called Act TV and check out our DVDs and books, etc. Thank you so much for checking us out.